0: This week on Plot Points Podcast, Mary Claire is Oscar Mike and takes a girl's trip. Toby has the right stuff. And our guest co-host Larry smiles at the world. Nobody knows anything. That will all hopefully make sense soon. This is Plot Points Podcast. Hi, it's Mark Sevi, Pot Points Podcast. We are uh, at the at the wonderful uh, Newport Beach uh, headquarters of Maya Cinemas, uh, which brings me to uh, saying that our co-host, Mary Claire Anderson, is not here again this week. She has some silly thing like a bachelorette party. I mean, who does that? And here we are with Larry Porcelli, who is one of the vice presidents of Maya Cinemas. Did I get that right?
1: You got it right. Yeah.
0: A wonderful human being and, of course, um, a board member of OC Screenwriters. And, our and curiously, he wasn't invited to the bachelorette part. <laughs> I don't think any Sorry, of us Larry. were invited. Um, we also hear that voice you heard, that dulcet tones, were, is uh, Toby Walwerk, our engineer. Good afternoon. And, uh, of course, he's also a board member of OC Screenwriters. We will have some news about OC Screenwriters, hopefully, for the next podcast. Uh, but what's going on with you guys? How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fantastic. I've been, for the last month and a half, rewriting a script of mine that I finished, uh, finally, called Looney Moons. But I've been also taken away from that by doing a story outline for a documentary I'm working on called Smiles that is based on doctors in Vietnam that work on recreating faces and cleft palates and things.
0: Mm, Interesting okay uh, and toby how you doing
2: I've uh, been good. It's been kind of a busy week uh work wise and I was working on a side project and
0: um a little side piece little little
2: I'm not gonna say that out loud, <laughs> but uh really it's times like these you wish you could manage time better and uh and I think that's something we can all identify with
0: yeah um. So, Larry, you mentioned a little bit of what we were doing uh, writing-wise and watching-wise. What, what, so you're, you're rewriting something, and you're starting uh, a new project?
1: Well, I'm working on a project as a producer oh, um, with another producer, uh, Bob Klein, and um, he, he's going over to Vietnam to shoot it, and it has to do with the Doctors Beyond Borders and how they um, are actually doing this work where c- young people have been – Defaced and and uh, injured, sure. and they uh, repair it to normal for them. Yeah,
0: I've seen I've seen in document not documentaries, but segments. Sure, on it. they're amazing. Doctors without borders, right? Yes, yeah. doctors without not borders. Beyond borders. Sorry,
2: but far more effective than yeah. doctors with
0: borders. And Toby, are you uh, writing and watching things, or what are you doing?
2: Yeah, this like I said, it's been a busy week, and I was able to. Uh, it, There's an old saying about when you're very, if you need something done, give it to a busy person (laughs) because suddenly time becomes very valuable when you try to manage it. So I was able this week to, um, I was obviously regular workload, also worked on a side project I've been doing for someone else. And then suddenly at that, up, up to speed, that new speed, I was like, well, now I've got some extra time. I opened up some uh, existing projects and uh, sort of did some rewriting, which is... Uh, That's amazing. Rewriting is always yeah. a, lot, a lot of fun, especially if it's something you haven't had hands on or eyes on for a little while, because mm-hmm. you get to read it a little fresh, and... Uh, most of my project most of my writing stuff is cloud accessible so i can do it anywhere mm-hmm. with, with an internet connection and are, I you using, that this week.
0: are you using are you using what are you using uh, script writing software Wise, are you using final draft or no
2: actually i was using uh amazon's story, story writer
0: yeah that's that's very, very reasonable For that i think
2: it's great i'm not sure i want them uh, I, there's a there is a privacy concern, although i'm sure that's a little more paranoid than based in fact
0: yeah cloud is always iffy so um, so uh, this week i we I signed to my um intermediate class uh the movie October sky, and um I watched that again, which i'm I just love that film because it 's about the early days of uh, it's it 's written by a um uh, the book was written by a NASA engineer who came out of a coal mine, basically a coal town, and also with that we had some uh, I had some questions um, where we talked about the right stuff, which is another great film, and of course my, one of my favorite films of last year was Hidden Figures. So it seems like uh, for me, na- uh, movie stories about the true adventures of NASA. And uh, the people that surround it are just so compelling. I just love them. I don't know if every, anybody else does, but I, I, I could sit and watch the right stuff, October Sky or Hidden Figures, over and over again.
2: Um, I'm a big fan of... Uh, October Sky I liked a lot. Um, Hidden Figures I haven't seen yet, but I did see a documentary that I believe... I don't know if one begat the other, mm-hmm. but well, uh, I did see a documentary about those women in it. It, it's interesting that in science, such a forward-looking or allegedly forward-looking discipline, um, still ran afoul of some Racism. of the more unsavory parts of our history.
0: Well, one of the things that's wonderful about Hidden Figures is at one point, and I don't know how real this is, but Kevin Costner, who plays the the the, the project uh, head, does a uh, it rips down the uh, the black white signs on the restrooms. And says we're all engineers here, or something to that effect. So that was I. I that to me seems a little bit like a Hollywood thing, but um, they do they do address it and they do address the idea that uh, the color uh, doesn't matter in math. So it doesn't matter anyway in anything, but especially in math. And the woman who who basically made the moon launch or the um, the moon launch possible was a a very talented mathematician, full stop. Not just a woman not just black not just anything but just a talented mathematician so um,
1: and in the uh juxtaposition with that in the right stuff they captured the macho mm-hmm. seat of the pants approach to the space program so wonderfully I well
0: that. did you you remember the scene where they're where they have to hold their breath Yeah, and they're all competing again they're all turning blue at that table and they're <laughs> holding their breath great mo- great moment that that you know the 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 well, anyway, the reason the, the right stuff came up will be, will become clear once I do my writer's profile. But uh, it was a really – I just thought one of the best. I tried to read the book. The book by Tom Wolfe is probably equally as, as fascinating. I just, I just couldn't get started with it, so I'm going to go back to it. But I've seen the movie a couple times. Uh, Slightly
1: been. laborious. The movie? No, the book. No, the book. Yeah. I mean, he expands yeah. so much, you yeah. know. So you have and to I'm, keep up with a, it.
0: And I'm a geek. I've been a NASA geek forever. So I had I, I shot off model rockets when I was a kid and all that stuff. So anyway, um, okay. So uh, and then as far as writing wise, um, I I haven't done much writing this week, but I'm stepping into a contract with, to do a script doctoring on a project, and um, the the reality show hasn't uh, been funded yet, so we're still waiting on that. And then I'm also working on a Revolutionary War script. I'll probably have to get some pages done before, the, before August, so I probably want to get about 20 pages done before August. So, so, and then my classes started again. If anybody needs a, uh, a, a place to workshop their material, I teach through Irvine Valley College um, uh, Community Ed, and the classes are ongoing. You can look in the show notes. There's always links to my classes.
1: Now is that a Revolutionary War story, a Revolutionary War story, or is it Revolutionary War meets Invaders from Mars?
0: <laughs> well, I can't tell you. You'd I can't. Really I'd, I'd have to kill you. So, sorry. My profile for this week is um, on a really incredible writer. Uh, some of you, I would hope most of you know who he is, but um, the rest of you, if you don't, please look him up. Uh, I'm not sure that any podcast that purports to cover script writing can neglect to mention a true genius and legend of the craft. Writer Aaron Sorkin has said of him, he taught me everything I know and about a tenth of what he knows. Who's this genius who teaches genius? His name is William Goldman. As if his name was somehow indicative of the potential for fame, Excuse me. in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, Goldman was the A-list writer who delivered box office gold. Movies like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid... Papillon, The Stepford Wives, All the President's Men, Marathon Man, Heat, and The Princess Bride, to name a few. Many of his most successful films were based on books he had written, which were also successes. The Midas touch was more than a phrase for Goldman. Not only was he writing scripts that would star A-list actors and win numerous awards, he was also the most sought after script doctor in the business. Then something very odd happened. More on that later. Goldman's various talents extend to novels, plays, and screenplays. Many writers attempt to carefully navigate both the literary and the film world. Goldman le- leaps over them. I don't think there's another writer who has had so much success adapting his own literary material to the screen. While Stephen King has many more films made from his stories and books, he isn't close to the output of Goldman in successful self-adaptation. Most of King's adaptations were done by other writers. Point in fact, Goldman adapted one of King's novels. Do you know which one?
1: Hearts in Atlantis.
0: Uh, and? Um, I was going to say Dreamcatcher. Misery.
1: Oh. oh, and misery, yes, and misery. Right.
0: Goldman was born and raised in Chicago, went to Oberlin College as in the Army as a typist. I'm sorry, he went to Oberlin College, then the Army as a typist, and then Columbia for his master's. He wrote short stories all during this time, but had no success at getting them published, which always buoys me. Whenever I hear a famous writer had no success, <laughs> I always love to hear that. It's called there's... Schadenfreude. <laughs> yeah, exactly, what, what he said. According to Goldman, even the material he'd submitted to the Oberlin Literary Magazine was rejected, viciously, and he was on the staff. He'd submit anonymously and listen to what the editors say, We can't possibly publish this shit. (laughs) After that, he said, I took a creative writing course where I got horrible grades. Do you know what it's like to want to be a writer and get the worst grades in the class? It's terrible. (laughs) Goldman finally had some success in the mid-50s when he began selling novels. And then in the early 60s, he had good fortune as a playwright before writing the novel that would catapult his career. Anybody know what that is?
1: Uh, No Way to Treat a Lady. That's
0: correct. It's a novel about a flamboyant serial killer, and actor Cliff Robertson read an early draft. He was so impressed by the work, he hired Goldman to adapt the book Flowers for Algernon, which became the movie. Well, you probably heard of Charlie, too, right? Which was the movie. Unfortunately, Robertson didn't like Goldman's draft, but the work got Goldman noticed and put him on his movie-making career path. Harper, which was in 1966, adapted from a Ross McDonald novel, starring megastar Paul Newman, was next big thing for Goldman, and it established him as an A-list writer. From then on, everything he touched was, well, golden. Mm -hmm. Goldman's first original screenplay was... original, not adaptation...
1: Uh, Butch Cassidy Bush and the, the Sundance, Sundance, Sundance
0: Kid. Yep, Butch yeah. Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That
2: was we were neck and neck on that. Larry and I. Got you,
0: that yes, scene. that's right. I, that's a point <laughs> each. We'll Half a I point have each. I more words out than he. Yeah, did. but he's yeah, got but a I copy know. of of this too, so I don't know if he's cheating. Wait,
1: hold on. What? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Goldman's first original screenplay was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He'd researched it for eight years. I can't imagine what you researched for eight years. Of course, this was before the internet, so I guess you had to go to a lot of libraries. Yeah, with the internet, it's a. Good forty-five. Minutes. Yeah, exactly. Now it sold for four hundred thousand dollars in nineteen sixty-seven. Then the highest price ever paid for an original screenplay, in today's value, that four hundred K would be close to three million dollars. Mm. Do you know the other highest-paid scripts according to IndieWire? Anybody
2: at that time or now? Uh, Any time. Um, jagged Edge. A pile of money at one point. That was like Joe Esterhaus's big
1: check. No. Joe Esterhaus didn't he get a horribly large check for that horrible movie he made? I mean, uh, didn't he, I meant horribly large check for that wonderful film, Showgirls.
0: Showgirls. Yeah. yeah. Showgirls was big. Well, let me tell you the top seven. That seven is Medicine Man, for three million dollars. Basic Instinct at six for three million. million, Euro Trip, for four million. I I'd never heard of that. <laughs>
1: Was that um,
0: the,
2: the National it's, Lampoons? You I, yeah, I mean it's, it's, it's a National Lamp- No, it's not National Lampoon's European Vacation, but it's it's on a par with those. It was all part of the uh, like the, the, the road trip early two thousands college.
0: Twenty o four, it was made. Wow,
2: that's a, that's a pile of money for
0: that script. Talladega Nights, four million dollars. Uh, Panic Room, four million dollars. The Long Kiss Goodnight, Shane Black, four million dollars, and the top. Uh, script of all time Was a movie called Deja Vu Which was a good I thought it was a good movie Wait,
2: the, the Denzel Washington yes, movie well, Yes Well I do enjoy that film Five million dollars <laughs>
0: Who I got that uh, sh- uh, Bill Marsley Marsilly Marce- 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 And uh, Pirate Scribe Terry Russo Rus- oh, uh, Yeah Terry Russo But, but good, good on that Yeah five million dollars wow. So the resulting movie of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids was a massive critical and commercial success and earned Goldman an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. In 1973, Goldman wrote perhaps his most loved work, the novel The Princess Bride, which was a huge success and was inspired by him asking his daughters what they thought he should write. One of them said, a princess, and the other said, a bride. So he combined them. Hollywood noticed the book's success, and Goldman did write a screenplay based on the book, but it would be decades before it was actually made into a film. So where is this quote from, gentlemen? Follow the money.
1: All the president's men. That's
0: right. It's a a 1976 film that was adapted from the Washington Post reporters Woodward and Bernstein's nonfiction book about Watergate. It starred a young team of now-legendary actors, Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford, and won four Academy Awards. Although Goldman didn't like the resulting film, it has become a classic and has new interest generated today because of the current political situation. By the way, the phrase, follow the money, was Goldman's. It never appeared in any of Woodward or Bernstein's notes or articles about Watergate. So he made that. And that's what, if you watch CNN, that's what everyone says, follow the money. Goldman's script for All the President's Men won him his second Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. This was his second as a writer. In 1976, Goldman also adapted the novel, his novel, The Marathon Man, to screen, starring Dustin Hoffman and Sir Lawrence Olivier. And Roy Scheider. Yes, it cont- he played the brother, but he was only in it for a couple minutes. He contained, it contains perhaps one of the least bloody but most vicious torture scenes in the history of film. The words, is it safe, conjure up mind-numbing fear and revulsion. If you haven't seen it, you won't want to go to the dentist for a long time after you do. Even now, the thought of it sends shivers up my spine. Such a simple concept and such horrific effect. Now, this is true genius. Where there's, I don't think there's any blood in that scene at all. There, it's just that god awful drill and that probe.
1: Golden lights and close-ups. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, and then yeah. Eventually,
1: well, part of that, that for me was the most
2: powerful was that right afterwards uh, he gives him the uh, like the Novocaine to rub on it.
0: No, the, no, no. Oil um, clove. Oil, of clove. oil of clove. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, and, and it's almost like showing like that he has a nice side. No. But then he says, that's because the nerve in that tooth it's is dead. not good anymore, and I'm going to start in another tooth. And that, <laughs> yes. that, that terror is... It, ratchets it. it ratchets it it, yeah. it absolutely.
0: up absolutely. Goldman was and is a man of opinions, very strong opinions. This has served him both well and poorly. Goldman was the original screenwriter for the film version of Tom Wolfe's novel, The Right Stuff. But director Philip Kaufman wrote his own screenplay without using Goldman's material because Kaufman wanted to include Chuck Yeager as a character, and Goldman did not. This cantankerous honesty would eventually manifest itself in the seminal book Adventures in the Absolutely, uh, subtitled A Personal View of Hollywood. At the time, Goldman was Hollywood's most sought-after writer. Unfortunately, in the book, he called out many stars, producers, and directors. He didn't speak all that disparagingly about him, but he did speak honestly based on his decades of experience. This honesty was as brutal for himself as it was for others. For Goldman, it was cathartic. For those he mentioned in his book, not so much. Most didn't take it kindly. In short order, Goldman's phone stopped ringing. He was cast into the darkness of an unofficial blacklist. He said that if he had known he wouldn't work for a decade after publishing the book, he wouldn't have written it. Egos are very fragile in Hollywood, and Goldman trampled many of them he shouldn't have. But perhaps the cost wasn't too high, because a line came from that book that is legendary.
1: No one knows anything.
0: No one knows anything. He quote quote, Goldman... No one has the least idea of what is going to work. The minute people start acting like they know everything, we're in trouble. Everyone, anyone thinking about getting into the entertainment business should read this book, not just writers or film historians. I've read this book three times, and every time I read it, I marvel at how true it is still still today. Nothing Goldman has said about Hollywood in the 80s was false, and that truth carries forward. We may think that it's a different world from the one Goldman detailed, but egos, fear, and the arbitrary nature of this business still hold Hill court in the land of make-believe. Goldman did the entertainment world a service, and he paid for it for a time by being shunned by the film industry. I took this directly from the Guardian website because I thought it was so indicative of Goldman. Quote, Goldman is the classic case of creative genius who respects the rules but has lived his entire life as if the rules do not apply to him. He encourages young writers to go to Hollywood, but he's lived most of his adult life in New York. He knows that stars dominate the industry, but has not been the least reluctant to disparage them. He's often been disappointed by the craven stupidity of studio executives, but retains an odd compassion for them. As the magic of moviemaking, as for the magic of moviemaking, it seems entirely lost on him. I l- that, that passage is so cogent. Um, I think he's just too much of a realist, and he just doesn't have a governor. His mouth still goes. The guy's incredible. Goldman did work after the book was published. In 1990, ten years after Adventures in the Screen Trade, Goldman wrote Misery, adapting Stephen King's novel. Chaplin, Maverick, and The General's Daughter were other films, to name a few. But none seemed to have that old Goldman magic. Perhaps he was just not motivated anymore. It's long rumored that he was the true author of the Academy Award-winning screenplay of Goodwill Hunting. He has consistently denied this. He has said that he did meet with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, but only to give some advice. He suggested eliminating a subplot dealing with the FBI and focusing the script more on family, which, you know, could be argued that it had a big effect. Then Rob Reiner tapped Goldman to adapt his book, The Princess Bride, to the screen in 2012. Goldman was suddenly back in best form. Princess Bride was nominated for and won numerous awards and has remained a fan favorite for years. Some famous quotes from the movie... Hello, my name is Inugo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Uh, Buttercup, we'll never survive. Wesley, nonsense. You're only saying that because no one ever has. Wesley, give us the gate key. Yellen, I have no gate key. Inigo in, 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 in Montoya, Fezzik, tear his arms off. Yellen, oh, you mean this gate key. The Princess Bride has touched many and far. The alleged founder of the Silk Road, an online black market and the first modern dark net market, named himself Dread Pirate Roberts, one of the central characters in The Princess Bride. In 2000, Goldman published a sequel to his book, Adventures in the Screen Trade, titled, Which Lie Did I Tell? More Adventures in the Screen Trade. It's no more—it's nowhere near as celebrated or reviled as Adventures in the Screen Trade, but it maintains typical Goldman straight, straightforwardness. Goldman has continued to work sporadically. He adapted Misery for a Stage Plage, which was performed on Broadway. His script for Heat was filmed again as wildcard in 2015. These days, Goldman is more likely to be doing interviews than script and novels, but he's still as brutally honest as he ever was. Quote, directors, even though we all know from the media's portrayal of them that they are men and women of wisdom and artistic vision, master the subtle use of symbolism, they are more often than not a bunch of insecure assholes. End quote. Goldman has also said about his work in another interview, I don't like my writing. I wrote a movie called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and I wrote a novel called The Princess Bride, and those are the only two things I've ever written, not that I'm proud of, but that I can look at without humiliation. He goes on to state, I haven't written a novel in over a decade, and someone very wise suggested that I might have stopped writing novels because my rage was gone, and that's possible. Wayne Goldman turns 86 this year. Let's trust that all that rage, all that furious mental storm which created characters who are both ultra-vicious and unforgettable in their villainy is really not gone. Is it safe, we ask? Hopefully Goldman will smile and answer, not quite yet. Um, and as an aside, I discovered just as I, before I came here that there's a documentary out on Goldman, or supposed to, it's in filming, but the IMDB uh, listing hasn't been updated for quite a while. So there's a Kickstarter page. If you're interested, look for a Goldman documentary and Kickstarter, and you'll see it.
1: As a small aside, one of the uh, Princess Bride was done in 1987, and in 2012 they did the Princess Bride yeah. short based on how that came together.
0: Mm, yeah, the movie was fantastic. I, it's, uh,
2: William Goldman is definitely one of the um, – gosh, I, I – I, I wish I could think of a better way to put it, but he's definitely one of the giants that a lot of people, uh, screenwriters that we know and like currently, they definitely sit on his shoulders. Absolutely. might not, aspiring screenwriters or people that are young and, and getting into the, 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 the discipline of it now, might not even know what he did because it's the people that copied him or learned from him that that they are are trying to copy or emulate or learn from and and I think that's in some ways it's sad although I guess there's something spiritually rewarding about being part of the firmament he's he's part of the the foundation on which uh, other people build and grow
0: yeah a lot of writers and producers and directors credit him with the with being the modern uh, screen screenwriter because of his structure because of his characters. Um, there's there's other great writers out there, but he certainly had an impact on on Hollywood that still continues. Like you said, it's it's he's an inspiration. I I, I feel badly that some of his films aren't as uh, well well known these days as they used to because when I was coming up, he was he was the guy. Him and Robert Town and uh, then um, the the Body Heat. Um, um, the body heat guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, nobody's helping me. Okay. Um the guy who wrote Body Heat and um um the one oh, never mind.
2: Wait, we'll c- is that Esther House?
0: No, no, no. It was um he also wrote the movie The Big Chill. Um cast oh, uh, yeah, yeah, Lawrence Kasdan. Kasdan. It was
2: Cazden that did Dreamcatcher. You're uh, earlier we were talking cuz the, those are like those guys. Yeah, those
0: are the, they, those are the guys, yeah. absolutely. So,
1: can I, want, I say about one, quote, one quote that I heard um, him say? Goldman. Goldman at mm-hmm. an industry function, something that had influenced him, the producer and director, George Hill, had said to him.
0: George, if, Ro- George Roy Hill.
1: Yes, George Roy Hill. He said, if you can't tell your story in an hour 50... You better be David Lean, who <laughs> made huge, big right. epics. The you director. Know? Yeah, and he kept that true in most Lawrence of his of stories. You know, yeah, yeah. most of his not, most of his movies were, you know, precise but punch, and and that was it.
0: And yet his scripts are, if you read in Adventures of the Screen Trade, if we're going to continue this discussion, um, the the novel, the script for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is in the back, and you can find it online anywhere. It is one of the most novelistic approaches to writing a screenplay i've ever seen and i'm i'm not going to say you shouldn't do that because the man was a genius he did what he did but he literally is directing the film writing it as he's writing it as a novel a novelist as a director and a screenwriter all at the same time uh, he, he actually puts in sequences that say, you should start here with a bright light, and then it doesn't matter if we know what's going on or not. It, it's, it's incredible. It, it's the worst example I can give to my students of how to write a screenplay. <laughs> yeah, just, as I say, just like that, uh, a
2: thousand screenwriting teachers uh, cringed at, at what was about to be uh, presented. Yeah, yeah. And so now, speaking of uh, things that make screenwriters cringe, uh, let's ask a screenwriter some questions and... Uh, All
1: right. Mark, what's the best way to approach a rewrite?
0: Um, Okay, so assuming that your first draft is fairly reasonable, you've workshopped it, you've taken it to a couple, even if you haven't workshopped it, you've taken it to a couple people, and they've given you some comments, and I would, first of all, the first thing I would ever do is print it out. Read it as a script on a piece of paper, as opposed to trying to read it on the screen. There's something about, I hate that, I actually hate reading my own scripts, but it is, it is the best process because something about reading it uh, really works on paper. So then I think you should do at least two more drafts. So the first draft gets you a lot of great energy, a lot of great ideas, but it's flawed. The second draft, you fix all the problems that you've heard from you know your mother and your father and your brother and everybody else who use your workshop, and then the third draft puts back that energy it's a polished draft, not a rewrite. So the first draft is your, is your first draft. Your second draft is your rewrite. Your third draft is your polish. I would do three drafts, and I would print the, each one of those out on paper and, and, and do it on paper. And I know that's an anathema, too. I have students who come into class with nothing but an iPhone, um, and that's okay. But when you're doing it for – you, when you're reading it, most people were going to read it on paper. Most of these executives get it printed out some way or the other, and I think you really need to do that, too.
2: Yeah, I, I actually, uh, I'm a, I'm often one of those people that just shows up with the iPad and the um, notes. But you're absolutely right. Pieces of paper, making it a tangible thing, I think there's an incredible value to that. Also, it frees you up to read it, mark it up, it, anywhere you're going. But also, I think you brought up a very valid point, which is unless you unless for some reason you're, you're ready to just divorce yourself from this project, don't think of any rewrite as the last one. Right. Know that you're doing three. If you're on the third one, you really should have everything figured out that you want to put in, take out, tighten, loosen, what have you. But um, I, th- I think sometimes we get into a bad practice of thinking like, I can just, I can just get this done and, and be done. And it's a cliche thing, but people say writing is rewriting. And uh, I think it's a cliche for a reason.
0: Yeah. Well, go ahead, Sorry.
1: I was going to say, in relation to that, should I write something for free just because I want to get it oh. done?
0: Um, well, I, I, the, my last segment will address some of that. Um, I think you should write for anything, for any experience, but definitely you should try to get some money. But um, what I would like to talk about in this segment would be more like what you're looking for in a deal memo. You should always get paper between you and anybody. I don't care if it's your brother. You should always get a deal memo, and that deal memo should, de- should detail what's expected of both of you. Uh, what's expected of you is you're going to write a script, and you're going to uh, you know, do it under a certain level of expertise. I guess that's a given if they're asking you to do it. Uh, you should also mention the payment. Even if it's minimal, it should always be at least a dollar. Um, just just to make it a legal, I think it 's binding anyway, but I always ask for a dollar if i 'm writing for free. Um, you should also talk uh, let 's let 's put it this way: you should never give away anything, including credits and back end money so if you 're asking if they 're asking you to write it for free or for like one hundred bucks you should say okay i 'll do that i 'll deliver a draft uh, you are if this gets sold and gets produced or gets funded, I want a production back end payment of 2.5% of 25 to 3.5% of budget. So that, that alleviates anybody going, well, it's going to be a low-budget film. We're only going to give you $1,000. No, if it's a million-dollar film, you're going to give me $25,000 when you get funded. When you get funded is the best way to go. Principal photography is what they'll ask, which means they won't want to pay you until they start rolling the cameras. And that, that's actually for their benefit, too, because um, there's a famous story about the Watchmen uh, script, or movie, It was two weeks away from opening uh, production in London, and I think it was Brad Gray, when he took over Paramount, he pulled the plug on it, or uh, somebody. I, I, I may be wrong about Brad, Ga- Brad Gay Gray, but if the writer was being paid on principal photography, he was two weeks away from getting a, uh, a check, and they shut him down. So I would always ask for money on funding. Um, also, you want a credit. You want to detail your credits. You should be first position, written by, or screenplay by. But even if there's another writer, you should always get first position. And you should detail that in your bill memo. And then also your terms of delivery. How long is it going to take? Two months? Three months? Whatever you think is reasonable, you should put down. And then the rewrite. If you're paid, being paid nothing, you should put in money for a rewrite. Because if they want the rewrite, they want the script. And that rewrite should be could be optional. It could be optional. A lot of rewrites are optional. Like a producer will say, if a rewrite is needed, we will pay you $25,000 or more likely a hundred bucks, um, but also a polish so usually when you do, when you write a script it 's a you, you write for the credit, you write for the money, you write for the delivery you write and then you 'll give them a polish draft, and a rewrite should be optional on on their part and but it should be paid for
1: well and going back to the beginning, do you outline your script? should we outline our script
0: um, i don 't uh, because i my process allows you not to outline, uh, which hopefully when my book is finally done i will be able to release on the world but um if you want to index card uh or look at because i think what happens with outlines i don't know with you guys i hate writing a script twice so i hate writing it as an outline and as a index card thing and putting it up on the board and then having to write the actual script but a lot of people in hollywood if they're going to hire you to write a script basically, and you don't have that much credibility, they're going to ask for a treatment, and a treatment is an outline. Well, if I can just jump yes. in. Yes.
2: Uh, you don't like to outline, but is that something that's developed because of experience? Like, for for a beginner, would you recommend that they outline so they don't get lost?
0: And I've never outlined. So you never did? Never. Okay. And, you know, I've written 150-page scripts. It happens. Shit happens. You write, you write until you're done. Um, and then you have to go back and cut a whole lot of stuff out. You know, it's kind of like um i heard a i don't i don't know if this is attributed to one of the masters but uh the image is in the marble and you just have to chisel it out and so you may start off with a bunch of you know uh, a, a rough draft but eventually you're going to chisel it out so I, I don't say there's anything i don't teach outlining in my class so
1: in reading and researching some information and in interviews with william goldman um he said that he was asked that question and he said, well, I'll tell you on one movie that I saw a scene and I wrote one word about it and stuck it to the wall. Then I saw another scene and re- stuck it to the wall and said, when I had, he said, almost 30, I knew I had some sequences mm-hmm. uh, just by one word, mm-hmm. you know, that I may be able to hang together. So, you know, he said, everybody's different in what they want to do. Yeah. yeah. When I'm
0: writing, I'm picking notes and I'm creating a pile of notes. And so those are future scenes or ideas yeah. and stuff. and. It it never really I, I kind of outline in my head and then I do it on a couple pieces of paper, but I don't sit down before the, I write to outline.
1: Well, do you have? Uh, you, I think you've stated before, you know, maybe three drafts, but do you think how many drafts a script should be rewritten until it's you might send it out?
0: I, again, it, three at least three, but uh, those are three that have been workshopped. I don't think you should ever send a script out without workshopping it because you're you're too in love with yourself, even if you even if you aren't. You, you just can't see the, the failings in there. So so for me, it's as many drafts as it takes to get it right, but I think three is the minimum. And, uh, you know, I've been teaching for a long time, and a lot of my students uh, do this almost intuitively, end up with three drafts.
2: Well, I, if I can jump in, I, I don't wanna, I certainly don't want to negate what you're saying, but I, I'm going to ask you to expand on it, um, especially with students. Students inherently by nature were looking for the shortest distance from A to B. Sure. So, for you to tell us that you do not outline, it, it sort of gives us free reign to just start typing on the page. But it,
0: no, that's not true. Well, that's
2: what I was going to ask you to expand on. Is that's not that's not what you're saying?
0: What I'm saying is, based on the my process, um, we we talk about we workshop ten pages at a time. So by the time a, uh, a writer gets to 50 pages, he's workshopped or she's workshopped that those fi- those 50 pages at least at least five maybe six or seven classes because there's always comments being given. So they're they're kind of outlining as they're going on. But the other thing is my process, the way I the way I design film, doesn't require an outline. It gives you four or five poll tent poles to go to. You go to those ten poles. If you're writing to those ten poles, you're already outlining the script. So. Um, More than that, if you want to take my classes, (laughs) look in the show notes. There's links to my classes, and and I can explain more in person. Yeah, I guess we're pretty
2: safe to say we couldn't get that all.
0: uh, Yeah, it's hard. hard, Well, I'm not going to give it away for free either, kids. (laughs) Uh, Well, Larry,
1: can I ask you to talk a little bit about
0: uh, this week in movie history?
1: Sure. Uh, One movie that opened this week Uh, In Europe, uh, it was called The Bicycle Thief. Uh, It actually was The Bicycle Thieves in uh, Italian, and the uh, producer and one of the writers was Vittorio Di Sica. And uh, he wrote this and put it because it became uh, what they called neorealism. And, you know, up until that time, all the movies we saw were written with happy endings, most of them. You know, and you had such great happy endings, and the American dream was always followed. And in this one, you start off a simple story with an Italian father after the close of World War II with a job, and he's got to ride his bicycle to work. And he's with his son, and the bicycle gets stolen, and he spends the film trying to chase down leads to find his bicycle. But at the end, he has to steal a bike in order to continue his work. And it was so profound, it moved and touched so many upcoming directors later who saw that as they were growing up or saw it in the 50s or, or early 60s, you know, from Francis Coppola to, to everyone, Truffaut, everybody kind of touched that. And then you saw the expansion of film in America become so, you know, you went to Bonnie and Clyde, you know, which it made the, the gangster a big hero, an anti-hero, so to speak, uh, it took from a bicycle thief up to Bonnie and Clyde and that's a big long line that I'm drawing there but uh if you trace the development of it you'll see something like that even uh where you had um the, the film Easy Rider you know nothing ended happily mm-hmm. you know when you came up into uh, Coppola's The Godfather which was probably the standard um you know all of a sudden uh cruel gangsters were uh, role models and they were the heroes and they were people everyone was quoting and making, uh, you know, oh, I want to be like him. And it did so well that they uh, had to come up with the sequel to that to finish part of the story because it was so endearing into the culture.
0: Is um, I mean, that's Europeans have always uh, uh, been more involved with existentialism than American, but the existentialistic movement started – in the '60s with filmmakers uh, probably like you 're saying inspired by the bicycle thief and and uh, some some others from Europe who, without happy endings, with endings that were more naturalistic with with like, moral like, ambiguity you know they yeah have more well and then but uh, the difference between um, between Easy Rider and movies like The Godfather. Is Easy Rider is more of a tragedy. It's more of a Shakespearean tragedy. Sure. It's a a man who believes he he knows more than the gods or or society, whereas Godfather is truly existentialistic because there's no good there's no the good guy does not win. He falls into the same trap, and so that's a really good point uh, with Bicycle Thief. I think it's uh, definitely you can draw a line from that to a lot. Of, and then of course the seventies were were rife with existentialistic films like Taxi Driver. Deer Hunter, yeah. Uh,
1: and it was, you know, the culture in the 60s created such turmoil, and but it didn't quite catch up to the film world to the 70s. Right. And the 70s really turned it upside down with, like you said, the Deer Hunter and just such magnificent film that riveted you and yet was, you know, so compelling and yet so uh, not – Dismaying, but also it was
0: real life. It was, it was, it was real, it, it was uh,
1: much. You, it, it created you, you didn't walk out going, ah, ha, ha, ha. Right. You came out feeling you felt what they felt, and the acting was done the same way. You know, look at Jack Nicholson, you know, when you came to Chinatown, that was based on a true story, right. and here he was creating this character, which you fell in love with, of course, but and all the subplots around it. But uh, Chinatown was just. And another further example of what was going on, you know, that the, the, the jaws—if you ever do some digging on it—it it was called allegorical in reference to the uh, Nixon years in the White House, which may be stretched, but uh, the writer never denied it. You know, so uh, yeah, when asked that question, I think it's question, a stretch.
0: I mean, you can make anything—you can probably make anything allegorical to the Nixon White House, so <laughs> if you try. If I can,
2: I think one of the interesting—sorry, there—I had to adjust me. Uh, I think one of the interesting points that uh comes up here from from the bicycle thieves um is that that is it's kind of a film school film it's not necessarily that widely remembered and known I'm, i I like it, but I think I saw it when I was in school but again it it's uh it's the shoulders of giants like it's the people that saw it and came afterwards and and yeah. especially that that late sixties and seventies American cinema that was inspired by it but the exciting lesson was that you could make something that was uh, downbeat very naturalistic uh, in style it wasn't it wasn't a extravaganza on any mm-hmm. scale but that an audience of an, a large enough intelligent audience could appreciate stories told that way and um you yeah. know we we love going to the movies and we like to see something big with lots of cool splody bits but but there is still...
0: Uh, oh, dramas are still still really... Yeah, yeah. and very
2: small dramas. Yeah. In, in, uh, in England, they called them the kitchen sink dramas mm-hmm. of the late 50s and 60s, which was about very working class people and very small problems, mm-hmm. uh, comparatively we, small problems.
0: And, and we went through that phase with... Uh, there was a group of filmmakers in the 80s who wrote blue collar films, who wrote... Films about Pittsburgh and uh, you know northeast. Yeah. Oh, well, Flashdance, of course. Flashdance and uh, the one, the one. No, that's true. Flashdance, I know. Actually, Flashdance is a frequently great movie. Probably not the number
2: movie. one example you were going. For, no, no.
0: I does. love Flashdance. It was. It really is a great movie. But but there are there are many others. Vision Vision Quest. Um, you know, talk about. Well, anyway, and then uh, to to your point, you know, Star Wars kind of kind of um, set an example that we're still working on now. I mean, you look at some of the films that are out there, they're amazing special effects. They're, they're not practical effects. I mean, they're not cameras following models. They're digital, but they are still all come from Star Wars, just like Taxi Driver and The Deer Hunter and some of the movies came from Bicycle Thief. So we all do stand on the, on the shoulders of giants. So. Okay, great. That yeah. was wonderful, Larry. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, so uh, we're about to wrap up here. This is my warm and fuzzy segment, and uh, it's going to be a little bit of, uh, uh, allegorical, but it's also uh, based in my life experience. Um, I've been a professional writer for decades, and that time I've written a lot of uh, for money and some for none. As actress Sophie Tucker said, I've been rich and I've been poor. Rich is better. As I interpret it, I've written for money and I've written for nothing. Money is better. Should you write for little or no money if approached by a producer or someone claiming to be a producer? Oddly enough, this question has come up both with a current student and a former student just recently. Let me tell you a little story to illustrate my opinion. I was hurting for money, this after writing and having 12 scripts produced. As of today, I have 19 films produced, so it was actually not that long ago, just a few years back. I found a listing for someone wanting a synopsis written. The fee was a few hundred dollars. It takes me maybe two hours to do something like that, so I said, what the hell, and applied. Weeks passed, and one day the phone rang. It was a man wanting the synopsis written. It was very nice, but I could tell there was something he was holding back. May I ask you, he said, finally, and forgive me for asking this, but why are you applying for this job? I checked your IMDB page, and you're obviously far beyond this type of work. I need the money, I confessed. I I would appreciate the work. Okay, he finally said, let's meet. I live in Woodland Hills. In hell, I thought to myself... One of the hottest places on the planet, and at that time my car had no air conditioning. I'll be there, I said with a smile I didn't feel. I got on the 405 and started the trek from Orange County to Woodland Hills, normally an hour and a half drive in moderate traffic. Today was bumper to bumper, and the heat was melting tires. At each exit on the 405, Long Beach, Inglewood, Carson, Culver City, I started to swerve off and say, F this, not worth it. Instead, I stayed and sweated and bumped, mile after agonizing mile. Talk about a highway to hell. I was living it. In Woodland Hills, of course, the man lived on the top of the hill that had no shoulders or roadsides and a few and very few parking options. I parked and opened my door, noticing the sheer drop a foot away to the neighborhood hundreds of feet below. I was still sweating, but now for different reasons. I went to the house, was impressed by how nice it was, and rang to be let through the gate. I waited, rang again, waited, rang one more time, no answer, swore profusely. I tried calling and got only voicemail. Meanwhile, I thought for sure my car tires were certainly slipping off the edge of the road where I had parked. I wondered what would give out first, the hillside or my patience. It turned out it was my patience. It was 20 minutes past the time we scheduled the meeting. I rang once more and then headed back to my car, getting in on the passenger side and praying that the motion wouldn't tip the car off the hillside. I swore up a blue streak. Three hours for this shit hot, disgusted, furious with myself for having left myself in a position where I had to drive hundreds of miles just for the chance to get paid pennies. I started my car and began inching back. Then I saw a late model Benz pull up to the house and open the gates. I debated. Yeah, hell, I've come this far. In the meeting, I discovered that the man who called me was the father of a young director who had just finished his first feature. They were both very nice and and apologized profusely for being late. Eventually, the sweat on my shirt dried, and the air conditioning and sweet tea helped make me feel human again. The director showed me some trial footage for the script for which he wanted the synopsis written. He hadn't filmed the movie yet, but the trial footage was amazing, truly visually stunning. I was impressed. As we talked, it became clear that he needed more than just a synopsis. He actually needed an entire script, except for the beginning footage he showed me. Long story short, that $200 job became two scripts and tens of thousands of dollars, and we're still friends. Don't you just love a happy ending? I've always been of the opinion that writing for someone or something is better than writing for yourself. I've written over 100 spec scripts, which mean for me only. Nobody's bought them yet. I do know what I'm talking about. Even if that's someone who wants you to write something for free isn't paying you, examine the benefits of writing something for someone as writing something for yourself versus writing something for yourself and see what comes up on the balance sheet. There's an old... Uh, 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 a technique where you put pluses and minus on a piece of paper do that see what comes up if the person you're writing for is motivated and most of them are even if he or she is not paying you that's one more person besides yourself who actually cares about that script the key to success in Hollywood is exposure you have to get someone to invite you into a room any room being open to the chances and opportunities is paramount and I don't mean the studio Of course, you don't want to be taken advantage of, so you have to do your homework and adjust your expectations. And, of course, make sure that if you're doing work for free, there's a possibility of a payoff at some point, unless you like writing that novel adaptation of every dead grandmother's story out there. As I said before, I've written for money, and I've written for nothing. Money is better. But if that's not possible, just write. Keep an open mind and a joyous spirit, and maybe you'll run into that director who lives on the side of a cliff and needs a synopsis and few other scripts written for real money. As I always say, especially when prompted and reminded of this by Toby, be inspired, do good work.
2: And that just about wraps things up for us for another episode. Thanks for joining us at home. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Larry. Good conversation and hopefully a little information folks at home can use. Anyway, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.